Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We hope you had a happy Thanksgiving holiday. As we turn our eyes to the season ahead, any number of feelings come to define these next few weeks. Excitement, anticipation, hope, seething, barely contained rage at family members you never really liked anyway. Excuse me, I mean feelings of deep gratitude and joy for the gifts we've been given. No, let's be honest. The holidays are a whirlwind not just of activities, of things to do and places to go, but of emotions. And where we lay such kindling in our hearths, the fire of drama is sure to burn. We turn this month to a new series, an exploration of what we here at Crime Capsule are calling holiday horror. Crimes committed not just during the holiday season, but in some cases because of it. We're starting off with a deep dive into American criminal history with a most auspicious figure as our guide, Edgar Allan Poe, creator of some of the greatest macabre, spooky, and unsettling stories ever written. His story, The Telltale Heart, is known the world over. But have you ever wondered where Poe got his inspiration for such a chilling tale? Every work of fiction has its origin somewhere and the seeds for Poe's story were planted years before he ever set pen to page, in two murders that took place a decade apart, one of which on none other than Thanksgiving Day. Here to shed light on the whole sordid tale is author and historian Andrew Amelinx, whose book Exquisite Wickedness, Two Murders and the Making of Poe's The Telltale Heart, was published last year by the History Press. Andrew, welcome to Crime Capsule. We are so glad to have you here. Great to be here. Very excited. Before we dive into your book, for those listeners who may not be familiar with your work, will you just tell us a little bit about your background and some of the other projects you've worked on? I was a a crime reporter for, uh, I guess, about 10 years um, on and off. Now I'm currently a uh, freelance writer working... uh, on um, mostly write for this site grunge which is like all about weird history and old hollywood and interesting really interesting stuff um but uh i I think my actually my first book um 
was uh, uh, about um, the murder and mayhem in uh, the Gilded Age Berkshires. It came out in 2015, and that was uh, Arcadia Press. Uh, and um, then I, I I live in the Hudson Valley, New York, and so the second book I did was all about titled Murder and Mayhem in the Hudson Valley. <laughs> there you um, go. <laughs> of which there is plenty, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, that, that one sort of spans from the American Revolution all the way into the uh, 50s. And, um, and the book we're talking about today is my, my third, Exquisite Wickedness, uh, Two Murders in the Making of Pose the Telltale Heart. Um, and I have another book coming out, uh, in, in March and, uh, that is, um, Satellite Boy, the, uh, inter- international manhunt for a master thief that launched the modern communication age. And, um, that's, uh, uh, from Counterpoint and that's, that one, that one's took the longest to write. It was about a five year process, but. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the research is is the best part, isn't it? It is. Yeah, uh, you know, I I love hanging out in libraries, looking at microfilm, and and you know, paging through hundred and fifty year old manuscripts. And it's just I don't know. Just, uh, I I find it to be super fascinating, and always um, you know, like to page through especially with um this with exquisite wickedness to be able to page through this you know uh 160 year old or 100 more like 180 year old uh uh notes from the vigilance committee uh, you know is and to know that you know this this was they were unknowingly or maybe knowingly making you know recording history and uh, just to get to to flip through that is pretty amazing to me. Well, we're going to hear all about that. And it, it really was remarkable. One of the things that absolutely struck me about this particular book uh, was the level of detail that you had on the sort of day-to-day, hour-to-hour, scene-to-scene sort of basis. It was some of the most granular reporting of uh, sort of historic crimes I've read in a long time. Thanks. Yeah, no, it was... Um... The, the, you know, Salem, the Salem Historical Society has, if nothing else, they have done a, a remarkable job of, um, of preserving that city's history. It's just, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, and all the way, all the way back to the witch trials. So, so this book is, it's a really remarkable project. Andrew, you have written, I'm going to see if I can characterize this correctly. You have written a biography of a short story, which itself is based on two historic crimes committed a decade apart. And it so happens that this particular short story has become more famous than either of the two crimes by... By a near infinite margin. <laughs> I mean, in fact, were it not for Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, we would probably have never remembered these two murders 
for the rest of time. They would have just been completely lost to history. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that is very accurate. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and the story has just gotten more and more famous uh, you know, as the years have gone by. As the, as the two crimes have obviously faded from the collective memory. So the first murder, we're going to talk about both. We're going to talk about the first murder this week, and we're going to talk about the second murder next week. Um, the first one takes place in 1830. The second one takes place in 1840, and Poe writes his short story in 1843. The question that I have for you is... In the 2000s, <laughs> how did you come to this particular account? And, and when did you know as you encountered this sort of series of events that it would form the basis for a book? Uh, you know, I, I've always loved Poe and I always wanted to get to write about him in some form or fashion. And, um, uh, and you know, I've always – I've just – sort of my niche has become historic historical true crime and uh, I just I, I happened to sort of stumble across uh, this this connection in a uh, I think somebody had, I think maybe I think it was maybe a, a Smithsonian from like probably 2005 or six or something they, there was a brief mention in it uh, about this uh, the first murder in, in Salem being related to it. And the, the, the more I dug into, the more I dug into it, the, uh, I stumbled onto this, the second murder that, uh, a lot of Poe experts believe is, is also, uh, also inspired the story. Um, and then, you know, it's like the, the further I dug, the more interesting, weird connections throughout um sort of just came kept showing up you know um uh it's you know uh, w- one thing about this this book for me is that like the subtext is really about um how the popularity of true crime sort of emerged during this time and how different artists used those true crimes to inspire their, their work. Um, it's fascinating that that dimension speaks so much to where we are right now with the, you know, dissemination across different platforms and different types of media. I mean, I, I definitely want to ask you uh, how that uh, parallels where we are now and how it diverges as well, because that is that is this kind of thing that when when you encounter the formation of that particular type of writing in its infancy, you begin to see connections across centuries. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and you know, and it's really interesting is that this uh, this murder in Salem sort of helped kick off the uh the true crime fascination in in America um through James Gordon Bennett um who covered covered the trial as a, a sort of cub reporter for a New York paper and would he would later um uh become a huge newspaper 
uh, owner in, in New York during like, you know, about 10 years later, uh, with his, um, with the penny papers, which were before the, the rise of the penny papers, um, they, it was sort of more news about the city council news about the, uh, what was going on with the stock market or whatever, you know, and, and, and the, and these cheaper newspapers that, that sort of went for more salacious, uh, stories at a cheaper price, um, really sort of gave rise to this, this whole phenomenon that we, that we, we are still going through. Absolutely. Well, why don't we get straight into this murder so that we can have the backdrop for Bennett and for Atri and those folks who ended up writing about them uh, a little bit later on. Tell us about, we're just going to jump straight in here. Tell us about Captain Joseph White of Salem, Massachusetts. Who was Joseph White and how did he meet his end and why? So Captain Joseph White was a very rich shipping magnet in Salem. Um, and uh, he, uh, you know, he was sort of the backbone of the gentry in, in Salem. Um, he was uh, sort of really well connected. Um, his uh, nephew, Stephen White um, had just become a senator for the state of Massachusetts. Oh my goodness. Right yeah. time. And, um, but the, the, the thing is, is that, you know, yes, he was involved in, in trend in shipping, you know, regular items that you would, you know, associate with shipping, but he was also um, involved in the legal slave trade. It was illegal in Massachusetts from 1808, and um, but it was sort of the unspoken truth was that a lot of a lot of the companies and in, in shipping companies in Massachusetts were still even in eighteen you know the 1820s were and later were involved with the this illegal slave trade. Sort of an open secret among those yeah. who uh, those who knew knew the industry, yeah. Yeah, and um, so uh, the thing about Joseph White was that he uh, he was very finicky and controlling, and used his money um, through his. You know, he's he was eighty two, so. He was getting towards the end of his life, and um, he would use he would often rewrite his will, uh, depending on who was in the family was in or out of favor. And um, at the heart of it, that's kind of why he ended up being murdered. Um, he was uh, so in, sort of a petty tyrant in a sense, sort of a family yeah. petty tyrant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, and. and and the, the, as the, so he was, somebody broke into his house, snuck into his house and bludgeoned him to death and then stabbed him to make sure that uh, the job was done. And nobody, you know, for, it was really at the time, there was no such thing as like, you know, a 
uh, police detectives per se. Um, there was like a constable and, you know, night watchmen. And, you know, there, it was before the, the rise of, uh, you know, a, uh, the police apparatus that we come to, you know, know, know today. And um, he, uh, so, you know, the Salem is immediately completely up in arms. They don't know what's going on. The residents, there's, it doesn't appear that any, anything's been stolen. So they're, you know, people are even more freaked out because it's like, oh, is there just a, a madman running around Salem? Um, <laughs> Which Salem, to be fair, was probably somewhat used to given its sordid history in the 17th century. But, you know, something that really did strike me in your account, Andrew, and this comes up several times. I'll probably have to mention it again next week. You know, you've got this amazing scene where the body's been discovered, there's an open window, there's footprints in the snow, and the, or, you know, boot prints in the mud, you know, that sort of thing. And because there is no police force, because there is no sort of dedicated investigatory apparatus, you have the entire town sort of just tromping all up and down Joseph White's house and yard, and everybody's looking for clues, and everybody's getting into it, and oh, look what I found over here. And, you know, this, this I, I know it's a little anachronistic to you know, to accuse people of this in that day, but good Lord, the notion of forensic integrity is just like, it's like a wet tissue, man. (laughs) Anything they hope to learn is like immediately obliterated. It's, it's just like, ah, but anyway, it's hilarious. It is very calm. It's comical. It's not supposed to be comical, but it is comical. Yeah, it is. And it's, yeah, it it really is just sort of a free for all. Um, so, uh, in order to sort of the, the, the town decides they to create this, um, you know, uh, a, a vigilance committee that, um, is it sort of put in charge of the investigation and it's, um, uh, made up of the elite who all have, all have connections to, uh, Joseph White and or Stephen White, his nephew, um, who sort of Stephen White puts himself uh, in squarely into the center of this investigation. He provides money, f- f- you know, to 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 search for the criminal. They, you know, he he provides his counting house as the as the headquarters for these guys. Um, and later, we you know, there it comes up that perhaps Stephen White could have been involved. He was, you know, he stood to gain quite a, quite a lot from this, you know, from the death of his, of his uh, uncle. I wanted to ask you this early investigation. It, it, it doesn't turn up very much evidence, but what it does turn up is it's kind of like, you know, when you when you kick over a log in the woods or when you turn over a rock and you get all these little creepy crawlies and squirmies, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, wriggling around in the dirt. There's this sort of series of chapters where you, one after another, you just start introducing us to this absolute circus of of criminals, of lowlifes, of robbers, of bandits, of kind of, as you write, not very intelligent kind of ruffians and hooligans and so forth. And there's, I've got names like Joseph Hatch, 
the Crown and Shields, John Palmer, a.k.a. Charles Grant, the Knapp family. And it's just sort of like I actually had trouble keeping track of them all because there were so many possible co-conspirators for this particular crime. So maybe you can un- untangle that, that web a little bit for us. But, I mean, what they don't find in evidence, they absolutely find in suspects. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. And... um not just in suspects, but in people in in sort of these thug criminals coming out of the woodwork to say, "I know who did it. I know who did." I mean, you know, because <laughs> they all want to. You know, they all they all want a little piece of uh, the reward money. Yeah. Um, but um, so, but, you know, the the thing about that I found very fascinating with this was that Salem presented itself as the, I mean, it was a huge shipping center. They, it was really, really, they were, it was really wealthy sort of in the years after the American revolution. And, and it presented itself as this, you know, perfect little uh, city where everything was great. And as soon as this, this murder happens all of a sudden, you know, the, the door is flung open and you find all these things that had been going on. And, you know, the, the, um, the, the crown and shields, uh, George and Dick, these two brothers from a very well-respected family with ship and shipping, everybody in this sort of is tangentially tied to shipping the shipping industry in some way or another. Um, and, uh, you know, that they're, they have relatives who are in, who were in, um, you know, the federal government. And, you know, so, you know, they're, they're, but there's, they're the sort of black sheep of this very well-respected um, family. And they have like a, you know, they were involved in, you know uh the gang gang of you know they had like a little robbery gang going on they had they had this illegal tavern that they'd set up where all the sort of young scallywags from boston would come to carouse you know what got me andrew it was realizing that you know these guys we talk all the day all day long about like you know, oh, this business is, is price gouging, you know, it's highway robbery and that kind of stuff. We still use that phrase all the time in the modern age. And as I read your account of what the Crown and Shields were up to in Massachusetts in the 1820s and, and so forth, I realized, no, these guys are actually committing highway robbery. Yeah. <laughs> They're actually out there on the highways as bandits robbing people of their possessions. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a nice little way to close the loop. You know, we'll take that. <laughs> For sure. Um, and so, so like, as, as you'd mentioned that the, the committee was really, hadn't really um, gotten very far. And then they stumble onto this, um, guy named Joseph Hatch, uh, who, um, had, uh, you know, he was a known criminal. He was in, uh, I think he was in jail and outside of Boston at the time, but, but the, there, there was sort of rumors that he had been around at the time of, of the murder. And so he, the committee sent somebody to go 
interrogate him at, at the jail. And he is the first one that sort of says, well, I wasn't involved, but I know, I know maybe who was. And based on this kind of flimsy evidence, the vigilance committee, um, arrests the crown and shield brothers, even the, you know, they were, even though the crown and shields were from a respected family, they, they felt like we need to, we need to get some closure, you know, to get the city back and sort of back to where it was before the murder. And then, um, you know, the, the Dick crown and shield, especially is this just kind of, devil may care probably a sociopath uh guy in his 20s who um you know they put him in jail and he's just starts setting he sets himself up they you know he's rich so they provide him with whatever he wants and he sits around has his friends come to to chat him up and writes poetry while he's sitting in, in in jail thinking that he is safe um, and then another sort of scallywag from, uh, <laughs> related to this whole thing, this guy, John Palmer sends this mysterious letter. Um, it's basically an extortion letter to, uh, the Knapp family. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. It's funny, you know, we talk on Crime Capsule a lot because it seems to come up a lot about the looky-loos. You know, we always talk about the folks who want a piece of the story. They have no connection to it whatsoever, but they think they heard something. They dreamed they saw something or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, you know, they just reach out to law enforcement with all of their bad, bad leads, right? <laughs> and it just seems like, you know, about every other case we get, we get the cranks, you know, coming out of the woodwork. And, you know, bless you, Andrew, because here comes John Palmer with his letter and his like, oh, I know who did it. You know, you better meet me here with this kind of money and I'll tell you, you know, and it's just like the plus a change, right? Plus a change. Um, but, you know, the, it, like, I, like I, I said, the Vigilance Committee was desperate to get this thing nailed down. And so... They uh, sort of push Palmer into a, a corner, and you know they, they he they promise him 
immunity, but uh, don't. Um, I mean, he Palmer's a little sort of doesn't want to be involved in it because he's he knows that all these rich Salem families are involved, and he's just a you know a sailor, a drunken sailor who met one of the Crown Shields in New Orleans like ten years earlier. But uh, so he he um, he sort of uh, points the finger at Frank and Joe Knapp, and um, the Knapp brothers are so. Joe Knapp is sort of uh, he has a pretty strong connection to to the murder victim through because he's married to. Um, the, the grand niece of uh, Joseph White, and he, um, you know, because because Joseph White didn't have any children, his sort of you know it's these uh, nieces and nephews who are sort of have replaced replaced uh, th- that that aspect of the of the family. And those are the ones who stand to benefit potentially from staying in his good graces and inheriting all of you know this money he's built up over the years. And yeah, there's a little extended network of interests there for sure. Yes, yep. Jo- and Joe Knapp um, is uh, he? You know, he was his family is sort of. I mean, they're res- well respected too, but they're sort of on the. Uh, their their fortunes fortunes were waning. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, Joseph, uh, White really disliked, uh, Joe Knapp and, um, disinherited his grandniece, um, because she married Joe. And, um, so the vigilance committee or committee of vigilance, it sort of goes either way. Um, anyway, they they arrest the two brothers, and then another character comes in and sort of um, in re- like inserts himself to the point of uh, being really devious, especially for a reverend. His name was Reverend Henry Coleman. Um, but oh, and, and just as sort of as a, a side note, you, we learned that that the the Naps had sent a couple of letters that tried to point the finger at Stephen White as being, uh, and 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 so at one point Stephen White goes into his counting house to, to talk to the vigilance committee, and they're like, all of a sudden he realizes that he's their main suspect for a brief a brief time. Uh, until they until they arrest the naps and then he's home free. But the the, Re- the Reverend Henry Coleman is this pastor at Joe's Church, and he uh, basically tricks Joe into confessing to the murder, and and uh, he 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 promises Joe he's like anything you tell me is going to be in confidence. I'm your reverend after all. And uh, then immediately goes and tells the members of the committee what, 
what Joe said. And then so he 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 just keeps hammering on Joe until until Joe confesses. Um, and when when the, after the Nap brothers are arrested, Dick Crown and Shield, who previously had you know been act, acting all debonair and you know double may care, uh, then realizes, uh oh, um, they have the Naps and they will directly connect me to the murder. And um, so he decides. So at the time, um, in Massachusetts, the the law was that you couldn't um, convict or you couldn't uh, try anyone as an accessory until uh, the um, the principal had been uh, tried and convicted. So Dick comes up with his for murder. Plan. He mean, I mean, murder. specifically yeah. with respect to it's murder. Yeah, murder. yeah. Um, and and the way that the the uh, the way that they had the state had um, sort of set up the the charges was with Dick Cranshield as the principal and um, his brother and the two naps as accessories. So Dick actually hangs himself. Thinking that if he's dead, then they, then his brother and the two naps would would be saved. Um, it's such a twist. I mean, yeah. nobody nobody saw that coming. I didn't see it coming. And as I was reading your book, I thought, you know, like surely, surely there's going to be some sort of you know wangling of influence or some evidentiary matter that's going to you know clear this this guy or he's going to figure out some weaselly way to get out of it. And no, he. he um, he takes his own way out of these charges. That's that was really kind of uh, you know shocking. It was shocking, yeah. Which means that the the focus immediately shifts. I mean, he tries to create this legal loophole for his accomplices, but it it doesn't exactly work, does it? The focus immediately shifts to Frank and Joe at that point. Exactly. Yeah, and. Um you know, the, uh, all these sort of things come together in, for the, uh, for the naps. Um, they, uh, the vigilance committee, um, uh, you know, they, they just sort of, um, shift the blame onto, uh, Frank Knapp, because Frank had met up with um, Dick Crowninshield ap- right after the murder, and so they just decide that that he, he, he that because he had, I mean, it was it was a, a stretch of, of of the imagination for this to be lawful, but they they just you know they they say well. Uh, you know, Frank Knapp was was also, um, you know, the main, the principal in this crime. So, so all of a sudden, he's the one that goes um, that that is now about. To, he goes to trial first, and just to make sure that he is uh, not going to weasel out of anything, they they call Daniel Webster as a 
a private prosecutor to come and, um, and, and, uh, and prosecute this case, which is, it, it was not a very much used um, process at the time. And obviously it's not, you can't do that now, but at the time you could, you could actually, the, the state could just bring in a, basically a ringer to come and, and prosecute the case. So I want to, I want to take a quick second for our listeners here, because I realize there are, we're throwing a lot of names out there in the sort of the sequencing of this trial is, uh, it can be a little tricky to follow the threads, but if we pull back the camera lens for just one quick second, Daniel Webster's entry is critically important for the larger story of Edgar Allan Poe and his encountering the uh, report of this trial years later. So we've had the murder, we've had the inquest, we've had the Committee on Vigilance, We've got a suspect. One suspect kills himself. We move to the next suspect. In order to prosecute the next suspect, the state brings in, you know, chief chief star, you know, triple A level, you know, most famous orator in all of Massachusetts to date. Uh, you know, the guy we read about in our history books, Daniel Webster. Right? And and that is the moment, just for, for our listeners, that is the moment they need to hold on to to kind of stitch the the thread back to Poe here in just a little bit. So that's 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 where we're at. And tell us, I mean, there are a couple of hung hung trials. There's a sort of the the the, the carriage of justice is much more a miscarriage of justice uh, sort of in, in this moment despite Webster's influence, but Webster he gives this speech and what is this speech that that just takes this into a totally new direction. Yeah. Well, so just to give a, a sort of brief thing on 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 Webster was that he was considered like the greatest orator of his time. He was also a sitting senator from Massachusetts at the time. I mean, it's like uh, you know having Elizabeth Warren come and prosecute your case or something. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like um, uh, and he just weaves this. Um, this uh, opening statement for the for the the trial that um, is sort of this masterful uh, description. Um, you know, I, I can give you a little brief thing. It was, I think, it's like it was a cool, desperate, concerted murder. It was neither the offspring of passion nor revenge. The murderer was seduced by no lion-like temptation. All was deliberation. All was skillful. And he just goes on in this and sets this very moody um, tale of, uh, of a, a, you know, sort of cold-blooded killer. And even though the person he's describing has already killed himself, it sort of it, it he just sort of transfers it onto onto Frank Knapp and um, uh, the the it's this it's this you know the the, the he Webster later puts it uh, sort of revised version into um, uh, one of his own books 
and this and this um, this this description sort of becomes a fairly famous. You know, I think it was um, described by one of the newspapers as like the 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 best ever you know description of a of a crime or whatever and mm, and yeah, that, that's where Poe sort of stumbles on it you know ten years ten years later yeah and it's funny because no one at this time has any any idea that that will happen and in fact as the the Knapp brothers are hung one after another I mean they're both found guilty of you know conspiracy and they uh you know they go to the gallows i mean their their story kind of ends but what is fascinating about this andrew is that it's almost like the story has really just hit the pause button hasn't it you know it's it's you know webster gives his speech it goes into the newspaper record the court the sort of court record um you mentioned this journalist barrett who was uh you know taking detailed notes on everything and and all of this is sort of laying the groundwork for something that is going to happen a decade later and nobody has any idea they think the case is closed they think it is just open and shut now yeah yeah um yeah, that's amazing. You know, it's, it, um, yeah, and it's just this. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it was. It, I think Poe was uh, came across this because he was working on another story, um, um, uh, the mystery of um, Marie Roger, which is another <clears throat> famous one that he direct took like. Like he didn't even buy, like he took this directly from an actual murder of uh, Mary Rogers, who is this um, cigar girl in, in New York City. And and that's where he just happened to come across this other description of the of um, Daniel Webster's uh, or, oratory skills um, and the and the Salem murder. And that and that sort of ends up helping inspire the telltale heart. So I have to ask you, and this is maybe our last question for, for this week, but it is one that has been sort of uh, consuming me a little bit since I read uh, your book, Andrew, I'm just going <laughs> to full confession. time. I have been dying to know um, you reproduce the telltale heart, which is of course now in the public domain. You reproduce that in uh, in your book and, you know, rereading it, it's just as good as, as it ever was. I mean, that story does not age, but there's this one detail in there, which, which I, I think must be pertinent to the account of the murder of Joseph White and the crown and shields and the Knapp brothers. And this sort of this, the whole first part of the story is about the premeditation and the stalking and the relationship between the, the murderer and the victim. Right. Um, anyone, anyone out there in, in TV land, I mean, just go reread Telltale Heart real quick. You, you'll see how it's structured, but there's this, there's this one kind of key detail, which I have to ask you to like pull back the curtain and, and, and tell me where this came from, which is, you know, the, the murderer in Poe's story obsesses over the victim's eye. 
right? I mean, he he sees the single ray of light falling on the victim's eye, and the eye follows him everywhere he goes, and the eye is sort of like piercing through him at all times. Where do we know anything about where that came from? Or anything about Joseph White and his, you know, unusually pronounced uh, sort of, you know, ocular vision. I mean, like, is there anything on this? Or was this like pure sort of like Poe inventing and giving us the the willies? Yeah, I think that that, you know, like what I, I could determine was sort of harks back to the idea of the evil eye. But um you know, as far as I I know, Joseph White had his vision was fine. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, if he'd been but, a sailor, uh, if he'd been a captain, right? He probably needed pretty good eyesight. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but um, uh, yeah, you know, he he definitely uh, well, you know, this the 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 description of of the cold-blooded killer and in in and the sort of stalking him definitely relates to the the Salem murder um but and uh, apparently there was a, a another um uh when he was a kid when Poe was a kid he would often have this um this uh sort of waking nightmare of being watched from the shadows so um but as far as i i think you know like the the poe experts that i dove into seem to think it just relates to the the idea of the evil eye but um unfortunately no i felt haunted I felt haunted. I felt seen, you know, again, it was uncomfortable, uh, <laughs> you know, but it was great. It was great. You know, that's what we come here for. Andrew, thank you. Let's leave it here for now. We will pick up next week. We're going to put the pause button on the murder and we're going to unpause it 10 years later uh, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Great. Very fun. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Andrew Amelinx, author of Exquisite Wickedness, Two Murders and the Making of Poe's The Telltale Heart. Join us next week for the second part of our conversation, where we'll hear about the second murder and the conclusion to this grisly tale. To order a copy of Andrew's book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org slash shop slash crime dash capsule. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes 
and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.